Hello, my friends, and welcome to another Robcast. This is episode 208, and it's called Leviticus, LeBron James, and the Concretization of the Ideal. Although, alternatively, I was going to title it Leviticus, LeBron James Socks, The Transforming Power of Makeover Shows, and the transcendence of ritual. And then I thought about calling it Leviticus, Makeover Shows, LeBron James, The Concretization of the Ideal, and The Elevation of the Mundane. Um, but that just felt, you know, too short and crisp. <laughs> so that's what this episode is about. We're going to talk about Leviticus. We're going to talk about LeBron James socks. We're going to talk about all those makeover shows, The Concretization of the Ideal, The Transforming Power of Ritual, and The Elevation of of the mundane and what this has to do with you and me, among other things. So, we have a bit of ground to cover. Before we do that, this week, this week, this coming weekend, are uh, the workshop readings of my new play. The play is called What's a Nucka? And uh, if you check Instagram, you can see the list of actors who are in the cast. They'll be reading the play, and uh, we're going to have ourselves an experience. I haven't done this before. Let's be straight up about this. <laughs> this is my first play, and uh, these workshop readings, um, we're going to have ourselves an experience. If you've ever been to one of my Largo shows, then this will be like that, only totally different, <laughs> only more people. But as you know, as you figured out by now, um, I create spaces. That's what I do. I get to create spaces where hopefully we all get to see things we haven't seen before. And um, I know I will be having the time of my life this weekend, and I invite you to join me. Uh, tickets are discounted at 25 bucks. They're at my site, and I'd love to see there. And the Greenway Theater is here in the lovely Fairfax District, Los Angeles, is a really small theater. Like, it caps out at like 100 or something. So there's not going to be that many of us, and we're going to um, have this experience together, and uh, I would just love to see you there. So that's happening this weekend, and then tour continues on. The Holy Shift tour continues to roll. Um, and uh, so next up, Ohio, I see you. Pittsburgh, I see you as well. Cleveland, Columbus, and Pittsburgh uh, is the next tour leg. Pete Rollins will be opening and uh, all those uh, info is at my site. And then later, October is Atlanta and Nashville. And then uh, November, I'll be in Denver. And then the whole tour wraps up at the Ace Hotel, the theater at the Ace Hotel here in Los Angeles, December 1st. But um, Ohio, it's been a while. I'm coming your way, bringing the love. And um, oh, my word. Yeah, seriously. Oh, and then also, tickets just recently went up. I'm doing another two-day event um, here at the Improv in Los Angeles. I have all this new teaching on the mind. It's called A New Mind. The event is called A New Mind. Um, I'm fascinated with thinking about thinking, how the structures, how we have essentially our mental furniture arranged shapes so much of how we live. And there are all these assumptions and expectations baked into the way that we think about things. No wonder we end up uh, making a mess of certain things. And so I'm going to take uh, you through over the course of two days. There'll be a bunch of special guests, and and there's something happens at these two days. Um, people come from all over the world. You, you Robcast people, you come from all over the world, 
and you start interacting with each other. And but uh, I'm bringing all this new um, content, and yeah, just things happen that it can't hard to explain. But I'll be talking about the mind of Christ. What did the sages and mystics mean when they talked about that? What does it um, look like for thoughts as matter, thoughts as clouds, thoughts as energy? I have all. Yeah, I have a whole thing. Um, oh, yeah, seriously. So much fun. And then, uh, oh, yeah, today, the day this podcast comes out, we're releasing part two of my new commentary on the book of Leviticus because it's 2018. Why wouldn't we do a commentary on the book of Leviticus? <laughs> and this uh, part one came out a couple months ago. It was uh, covered chapters one through seven. It's an audio commentary. Uh and it was three hours long, the first seven chapters, and now we're releasing chapters eight, nine, and 10, and that takes another three hours. Um, I take you through those three chapters, and uh, I think you'll see, yeah, there's something going on in Leviticus, which is why I'm going to do this episode. So, so far, we've released six hours on the book of Leviticus, but I figured I should take one of the ideas from the commentary and just do a Robcast episode on it because I find all of it so compelling and also because I'm fascinated with how many people... Um, Leviticus is like a punching bag for the Bible. Like all the reasons why people don't read the Bible, they're like, seriously, have you ever tried to read Leviticus? What could this possibly have to say to us? And at some level for me, that's like a like someone's like, it's like throwing down a gauntlet. Like there's something within me. In some ways my life work has been surrounding these, these ancient texts. Um, they're like base notes, and we need base notes. Um, so they're old and have all sorts of primitive practices and, and slaughter of animals and tribal consciousness. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we sort of pride ourselves on being that we've evolved past that, even though, honestly, you can't say that without acknowledging all the ways in which we still have a long way to go. Are you with me? So um, what I want to do in this episode to celebrate the release of part two is I'm just going to do a brief bit um, on the book of Leviticus. And one of the ideas, I'm going to do like a, it'll be like a, a much quicker version. And then in the commentary, it, it, you know, it goes on for way, way down, like many, many layers down. But I want to share with you just one of the ideas that's sitting here in the book of Leviticus that um, has so much, well, like in the title, transformative power for how you see the world. So um, we're going to dive into this and we're eventually going to talk about LeBron James socks and we're going to talk about makeover shows and the elevation of the mundane and your closets and your breakfast and the backseat of your car. We're going to cover all of that um, based on a ancient priestly manual that's literally thousands of years old, right? So because, of course, that's what we do. Now, uh, if you try to read the book of Leviticus, it's the third book in the Bible, it's the middle book of the Torah. If you try to read it, if you get through chapter one, well done to you. But the number of people, it's a graveyard of people who tried to read the Bible all the way through and got to Leviticus. They hit the Levitical wall and were like, that's it. And they tapped out, which I totally get. Because if you read this thing, like, let me just read for you verse three, chapter one. You're just three verses in. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you're to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that you may be acceptable to the Lord. You lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. By the way, scholars don't even really know 
why the laying on the head of the burnt offering. Some say it's because of transfer of guilt, but it's clearly not because of the larger context of this ritual. I mean, literally you have scholars going, we don't know what some of these actions mean, or we don't know what the ancient Near Eastern practice is it's referring to. Um, even the people who know the most are like, yeah, some of this we just don't know. Um, I mean, notice verse six, you're to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Cut the animal into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the altar. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces of the animal that was slaughtered, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. We're only eight verses in, and we're already like, what? Right? Not to mention the large-scale slaughtering of animals, etc., etc. So, for all of you who have like a deep-seated, why would we even waste our time? Let me just start and say, I get it that when you read this thing, it is tough sledding. Verse 12, chapter 3, if your offering is a goat, you're to present it before the Lord. Verse 9, chapter 4, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys, just as the fat is removed from the ox sacrificed as a fellowship offering. Then the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. It's seven. This book opens with seven chapters of detailed commands and regulations about how to offer sacrifices on an altar to God. So, if you read this, first off, you're like, what could possibly be going on here? Now, let's go. It's written in English, but if you dip just below the surface, even you can see this pattern in English, although it's very, very difficult unless somebody sort of helps you. Um, and this is what happened to me as you start reading this and you realize, wait, there's other things going on here. Here's what I mean. In the first seven chapters of Leviticus, there are these five sacrifices that the people are commanded to offer. And there is a pattern of seven commands, seven major commands given to Moses about how he's to offer these sacrifices, how to do these rituals. Now, what's really interesting is if you then forward to chapter eight, in chapter eight, when these priests were ordained, because you need somebody to embody it, to show you how to do it, how to do these rituals. In chapter eight, there are seven major commands about how to ordain these priests. Now, why is that interesting? Because these priests and these rituals are to be enacted at the tent of meeting, like a portable tabernacle, temple in the wilderness. And if you go back to the instructions to construct the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, chapters 25 through 40, there are seven major instructions, main instructions on how to build the tabernacle. How do you build this space? Seven major commands. Uh, who is going to lead everything in this space? The priests, seven commands on how to ordain them. And what are what's going to be done in this particular space? Uh, there are five main sacrifices and there are seven major commands on what to do in that space. Now, why is that interesting? Because seven in Jewish consciousness is a number associated with creation. So Genesis, the Bible begins with a poem, and in the poem, there are seven days in the poem that correspond to creation. Now, why is that interesting? Because these people here at the beginning of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus begins 
at the end of the book of Exodus. So Exodus ends and then it picks up in Leviticus. So there's a story that's unfolding here. What is the story? The story is these Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. And the story of the book of Exodus is about how these slaves in Egypt were liberated from their enslavement and brought out into the wilderness. So Leviticus begins right at this moment when these slaves find themselves free out in the wilderness. Now, why is this interesting? Because in Egypt, the world was ordered a particular way. Slavery is a particular kind of ordering in which the Egyptians owned and oppressed brutally these Hebrews. So there was a particular ordering to how the world was arranged. And that when these slaves were liberated from Egypt, they were liberated from that ordering of creation. So the question becomes, how are they now going to order themselves? Have you ever, uh, ever been in a toxic relationship, ever worked in a dysfunctional a work environment? And in that relationship, things were ordered a particular way. No one told the truth. People didn't do what they said they were going to do. There were lies and games and deceit, and there was uh, all sorts of psychic, spiritual disturbance going on, whatever it was. And then remember that thing that happened when you, you left that job or the relationship ended, and all of a sudden, you weren't in that ordering of things, that relational ordering of things. And the question becomes, now how am I going to order myself? How am I going to order my work life? Uh, is my next relationship going to be ordered that similar way or am I going to do it differently? And so this is the question that's hanging in the air at the beginning of Leviticus. How are these former slaves going to order themselves? Now, at that time in that place in the ancient Near East, people had temples, they had gods they believed in, they had priests, and they enacted things in temples. But so, first off, the idea of slaughtering animals and offering sacrifice and all that, that was how everybody did it at that time. That's how the world was. But what's really interesting is if you go below the surface in Leviticus, these first seven chapters, which deal with these five sacrifices, the, uh, a number of the sacrifices don't involve animals. They involve grain. They involve olive oil, honey, yeast, and the sacrifices are the offerings. Uh, an, several of them are for peace and joy. Therefore, they're called fellowship offerings. They're basically, here's what to do when you're overwhelmed with joy. Here's how to give expression to your joy. A number of the sacrifices, the rituals, are about how you relate to others. So some of them are about guilt. They're about anxiety. Here's what to do when you're overwhelmed with anxiety. When you have stress and tension, here's what you do. Here's what you do with guilt when you've wronged somebody. Or uh, there are also uh, sins of omission. Here's when you didn't do something that you should have done. Here's the ritual for you to do. So when you go back through just below the surface, it's almost like you hold your nose to the ancient things about it that you're like, I just don't get that. That seems pretty embarrassing. But if you go just below the surface, what you realize is that it all begins with, here's how you live in peace and harmony with your neighbors, and here's how you give proper expression to your joy and gratitude. Yes, that's how the book begins. 
It doesn't begin with heavy-handed judgment and condemnation. It begins with, here's how you live with vitality and connection to those in the world around you. Now, why is this interesting? Because the commands, there are seven major commands. So anytime you see seven, seven is about creation. So what is this about? This is about a new ordering of the world. There is the old ordering of the world, which was slavery, oppression, and just brutal abuse. Now these rituals these people are given are for a new ordering of the world. And the way that you order the world in new ways begins here with these particular rituals. Now, these rituals then, and this is why the book is so hard to read and why it can be so boring and easy to be bogged down is you read it and you're like, and God commanded this and God commanded this and God commanded this. And then Moses was told to do it this way. And it appears like, man, this God is like obsessed. This particular Hebrew God here in the story appears to be obsessed with details and appears to be absolutely driven to have people do things a particular way. Yes, you're correct. And when you read it, it feels heavy-handed. But then remember, creation is always about making distinctions. So the creation poem is about land, sea, air, birds, fish, animals. It keeps repeating each according to their kinds. The creation poem, if you want beauty, if you want design, if you want things to flourish, if you want it to be pleasing to the eye, then you're going to have to make distinctions. This, not that. Every one of you who's ever gotten a kid's room ready for your newborn, you decided on that paint color, not that paint color, right? Are you with me on this? You're getting dressed up to go out. You chose that coat, that jacket, that dress, not that one. Everything interesting, come on now, everything interesting begins with making distinctions. You opened your business there, not there. The product weighed this much. It was this color, not that much, and not that color. Central to the ongoing creation of the world is the making of distinctions. And central to Hebrew consciousness in these texts is the distinctions are unbelievably important because they determine the kind of world that you are making. By the way, let's just pause here. For those of you who have, on a regular basis, a strong sense of how things should be. Now, we're not talking like a bully, stubborn sort of ignorant, but we're talking about just a strong sense aesthetically, a strong sense organizationally of how things should be. Yeah, that's a, that's a divine impulse. You have a sense that it should be this, not that. Every, everything that's ever been created that moved you, inspired you, gave you something to strive for, it always begins with distinctions. The person made this movie with this tone, with this score, with this particular feel, not that movie. <laughs> yeah, they cooked it this way. The proportions in the recipe were these proportions, not those proportions. Distinctions are central to creation. And often what happens is people are swimming in such a sea of mediocrity that the distinctions just get beaten right out of them. 
the committee, the red tape, uh, the headquarters, the boardroom, they just beat the distinctions out. It doesn't matter. Just make something that's cheap. Just make something we can ship well. No one cares, but you do. You do. Something within you is like, no, these distinctions matter. If you're a parent and there are certain things about the space that your kid is inhabiting where you're like, no, no, it's not good enough. No, it needs to be this color. No, it needs to be shaped like this. Yeah, of course, of course. There's obviously all sorts of ways to go off the rails, but, but that deep sense you sometimes have of distinctions, listen to that. Listen to that. That is a divine impulse. Yeah. So what you see here in Leviticus is everything at the beginning of Leviticus, it's all about the creation of the world, which is why all the patterns of sevens is in Hebrew consciousness, sevens is always about the creation of the world. By the way, if you want to take the number thing farther, the priests are ordained and the priests are told, now this is chapters eight, nine, and 10. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Now available, part two, blood, guts, and fire, the gospel according to Leviticus. <laughs> uh, available uh, now at robbell.com. But uh, it's also fresh because I just spent the week recording it. What's interesting is when the priests are ordained, are ordained, they spend seven days at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and then they begin uh, leading the people in the rituals on the eighth day, which, uh, yeah, of course, on the eighth day, because it's the first day of the second week of creation. So that takes you all the way back to Genesis. Yeah, there's the first creation. And so when you see Leviticus and you find it so hard to read, it's like, what is it talking about? Here's what it's talking about. It's talking about how do you order the world? Do you see how if you just enter into the story, you're at 2018 in a heartbeat? How do we order our world? What kind of world do we want to live in? How is it structured? Is it okay that more and more and more and more wealth is in the hands of a smaller group of people? Is that okay? Is that a good ordering of the world? Because Leviticus is about a sharp critique of any system where a small group of people have more and more and more of the wealth. So you'll see, and, and uh, later on in, in the commentary, I, I get into all the regulations that are about making sure that everybody has enough, making sure that everybody has enough food, making sure that everybody has enough access to cultivation, to the stewardship of the land. Yeah, it's always, it's always about justice. The rituals are always about justice. So you can see why these former slaves have this pressing question in the ancient Near East thousands of years ago. How are we going to order ourselves in such a way that we don't end up back in slavery? How are we going to order ourselves in such a way that we don't create a new society of oppression and brutal injustice, just like the one we came from? So these rituals are about world construction. It's always about what kind of world are you going to make? So now when you read the book, you're like, oh, so I wonder what things I can learn about this that I can then help me think about the world that I live in now. So a couple things about the nature of rituals and the relationship of ritual to space. So first, the reason why the tent of meeting keeps coming up and why so many of these sacrifices and rituals are do it at the tent of meeting, at the tent of meeting, meet at the entrance of the tent of meeting is there is the common space where all the people are camping, these former slaves in the wilderness. But then the tent is about setting aside another space. So this 
tent, tabernacle, soon a temple down the road. This is about another space where the rituals are going to be enacted. So essentially, think about space as the world, the world that you and I live in, is chaotic. It's messy. It's often unfair. We are bombarded with advertisements, with fake news, the internet. It's, it is a place often where disorder seems to be running rampant. But then the tent of meeting is about creating a space that is not like that space. It's about creating a space that is ordered, harmonious, and has a certain, once again, it's thousands of years ago, a certain logic to it. So the idea is this. You come out of that space that you inhabit that can often be destabilizing, disorienting, and can make you just flat out discouraged and depressed. You come into this other space in order to see, feel, experience, and taste how things could be. So this other space, this tent of meaning tabernacle space, is in many ways a critique of that other space because what it does is it says things could be better. So every single thing here happening in the book of Leviticus where it mentions the tabernacle, think to yourself, it's about hope. Things could be better. So you go into this space and you enact a ritual in order to have your imagination activated for what could be. Scholars call this the concretization of the ideal. There's an ideal. There's a place that we could go. There's a way the world could be. And you feel it just like I feel it. Are you with me on this? There is a way our politics could function. Honesty, dignity, respect, maturity. There is a way our economics could function. Everybody has enough food. Uh, things are fair. The playing field is level. There is a way we could care for our earth where it's sustainable, where we're not leaving behind a mess for our grandchildren. There is a way things could be. And the power of a space, a ritual space, is you come into that space and you enact how it could be in order to fill you with hope and to remind you that you have power. If I can do this ritual and I can bring order and peace to this space, then maybe I could bring a bit of order, peace, harmony, and justice to other spaces as well. Do you see how rituals are in many ways the antidote to despair? Yes, I know it looks like things are going off the rails. Yes, I know like the thing's about to hit a wall. Yes, I know it looks like the thing is getting worse. But when I enact this ritual, at least in that moment and in that space, things are something else. They're better. They're what they could be. They're a concrete feel, taste, touch, embrace of the ideal. So that's what's happening here. I mean, think about music. Think about that thing when you go to a show and all these people are singing together and they're from different backgrounds and they're from different socioeconomic spaces and yet all these different people from all these different places come together and sing together. And this is why it's so beautiful is you think if we can sing together, if we can agree on this, uh, the ancients called it a resonating interval 
when you breathe, chant, or sing with other people because literally your bodies are syncing up. You're inhaling and exhale. If you and I sing together, we're inhaling and exhaling at the same time. So our bodies are doing, one of the central things our bodies are doing, our bodies are doing it together at the same time. And it's like, if we could be united at this level, man, it raises questions and possibilities about other ways that we could be united. So you see why group singing has for thousands of years been such a profound ritual. It's a concretizing of the ideal, is if we could agree on these notes and singing at this time, pauses, breath, inhale, exhale, man, that opens the door to all sorts of possibilities. Yeah. (laughs) My friends, we're just dipping our toe in the book of Leviticus. Now, central to the rituals is detail, which is why the book of Leviticus is so incredibly hard to read, is because it just keeps repeating detail. Put the part here, put the thigh here, offer the grain this way. It's just mind-numbing in its repetition of detail. But remember, central to the ordering of a new world are rituals that give you a vision and an imagination of that new world, and central to a ritual is always the importance of detail, the elevation of the mundane, the details always matter. Because if you can get the details right, that's the first step. If you want to create a new world, start by getting breakfast right. <laughs> you see what I mean? Like you're, you're filled with this profound sense, this foreboding sense of despair. You feel like your life is out of control. You feel like nothing makes sense. You feel like everything you do just sort of start by getting breakfast right. Uh, general, by the way, side note, tangent, general rule, don't eat in your car. You know what I mean? Just just try not to eat standing up. Just real basics. Sit down. Even a napkin is nice. Do I sound like I'm 85 or what? Try to use a napkin. But seriously, start with the small... And once again, this has nothing to do with money, nothing to do with education. This is like who you know, network. This is just get your breakfast right. Eat it sitting down. Take some time. Pay attention. It's like, you do that right, and it has seismic power to shape the rest of your lives. That's why uh, all my friends out there who are in recovery, you know what I'm talking about. You're celebrating another day clean and sober. One of the first things that happens in recovery is the elevation of the mundane, because tiny little decisions can take you right back into Egypt. You with me on this? tiny little not doing it rights and you're going to be face down in the gutter. So so it's almost like the elevation of the mundane gets forced upon you. Man, take this next decision, take this next five minutes really seriously. Do this small thing right uh, because the big thing is the accumulation of all the small things. Here's what I mean. Out uh, all around LA and just down the street from my house, as soon as you go to any of the major streets, you're just bombarded with billboards, um, advertising. Every television show and movie you can think of um, comes up. So when I drive my daughter to school in the morning, we're endlessly discussing all the new billboards of all the new shows. And I noticed uh, probably a year ago this one billboard that just kept coming up. I swear it was every mile between here and my daughter's school um, about this one makeover show. So I went on, uh, I went on the old uh, interwebs, And found the show and started watching it. And I would just be like like a 
teary mess at the end of every episode. The show moved me so much. And uh, I just don't really watch TV, especially like cable TV. I just don't ever watch. But it alerted me to this whole world of makeover shows that you can get your body, your house, your car, your kitchen, your, you can, whatever it is, you can get it made over. And the general premise, let's talk about the makeover shows, the generic ones where they just go in, they descend on somebody's house. The person's usually sitting in a lazy boy recliner. Are you with me on this? Um, Eating some form of processed food. (laughs) They haven't exercised in forevers and they're often wearing flannel and sweatpants, some combination thereof, sometimes flannel sweatpants. Are you with me on this? You've seen this. You know what I'm talking about. You are familiar with this genre. And then what do they go do? What do they do? They teach the person a couple of uh, meals to make that are healthy. They take them to get their hair cut, beard trimmed. They take them clothes shopping. They go through their closet. There's generally a moment where they open up their closet and say something like, oh my God, your clothes are awful, right? (laughs) Uh, They go through their house. Why do you still have this carpet? Why do you have, oftentimes the person has lots of junk around that is associated with days gone by. It's like they're sort of, their material possessions speak of what was, not what is or what could be. Um, and gradually what they do, and this is such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful, here's the word, Levitical impulse, is they teach the person how much the everyday details of their lives matter. They elevate the mundane. They say to them, why are you wearing those shoes? What are those? They show them how to make breakfast. They help them arrange their closet. And always, always, tell me if you've seen this, there are trash bags that go out of just junk. They get rid of all of this weight that the person has been living in amongst. Yeah, that's a, that is a divine impulse, what you see in those makeover shows. Now, sometimes it's a little bit ridiculous, obviously, and hokey and corny, and oftentimes it's cable TV, so it's just ridiculous from the get-go. But I would argue the reason why it moves you at some level is these people swoop into a person's life and they say, the whole thing matters. Every last detail, it matters. Yeah, this is the concretization of the ideal. You want a life of meaning, hope, purpose, joy. We're gonna start with your we're gonna start with your underwear drawer, right? They start with concrete, physical, tactile things and say, let's get your beard right. Let's get it trimmed. In fact, let's get you a haircut. In fact, let's get rid of that beard. <laughs> because In the ancient tradition, in the book of Leviticus, everything is spiritual. There is no false boundary between the spiritual and everything else. And the detail, it is the elevation of the details. This Hebrew God, this God who rescues people from slavery, the the God who these storytellers are telling about, all the the reason why so many of the passages are so boring is because it's about the details. So if you reread the book in light of this detail matters, this detail matters, this detail matters. See, it's important not to get hung up on form. You and I don't um, offer animal sacrifices. We don't wear turbans. We don't have uh, generally a high priest who wears a linen ephod. There's a number of things that just aren't how our world is. Our world has moved forward, backward, sideways, however you want to say it. Um, We aren't living thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East in the wilderness. So it's easy to get distracted by form. But the much better question to ask is what is spirit animating form? 
and the spirit in this text animating the form all through the book of Leviticus, the spirit is, here's how you reorder the world in new, beautiful, fair, and just ways where all humans can thrive creatively taking part in the ongoing creation of the world. And the way that you do that is you begin with the details and you get the details right. Imagine if you uh, were talking with LeBron James, the greatest basketball player ever, I know there's people right now who won't hear one more thing I say. You're so cranked up, but relax, because it's true. Um, imagine if you're talking with LeBron James and you said to LeBron James, what kind of socks do you, what brand of socks do you wear in a game? And imagine if LeBron James looked at you and said, I don't know. That's a good question. I never really thought about it. I just, uh, when I need some, I just tell my wife and, you know, when she's at Target, she picks me up a couple pairs. <laughs> You'd be like, no, I think you're punking me. Because you and I both know, and I don't know why we know this, but we just know that LeBron James knows exactly what kind of socks he wears. I assume he's tried every kind of sock that he can, and I assume he has dialed in the precise socks that he wears because the man is trying to perform at the highest possible level, and socks matter when you're trying to do that, especially at the age of 33 when you've now come to Los Angeles. Thank you. So... You and I instinctively know that he doesn't take the socks things casually, that he is wearing the best possible pair. And the reason why I find that interesting is because at that level, when you're performing at that level, the details matter. And what you see in Torah here, what you see in Leviticus, is that for everybody everywhere, the same thing is true. Which is why those makeover shows, they go visit Larry in Georgia and say to essentially, Larry, your socks matter. And they get a trash bag and they take all his old nasty socks and they put it in it and they take it out to a trash bin and they go and they get him fresh socks, right? You've seen this a hundred times because what's true of LeBron is what's true of Larry in Georgia. Because... When you are creating a new world, when you are participating in the ongoing creation of the world, one of the greatest antidotes to despair, fatigue, discouragement, oftentimes even depression, is a ritualization of the mundane. You elevate the details as a way of saying, now there's a lot in life that is chaotic and messy that I can't control, but I can control this. And it is those tiny steps of empowerment that elevate the soul and can actually fill you with hope. And what you see here is these former slaves out in the wilderness are given page after page after page of very specific instruction, which you and I can read with, the divine details matter. The divine is in the details. The details matter. The details matter. The details matter. So, God is in the material. Let's talk about you. What is it you want? What is it you're longing for? What is it you want your life to be? And on the flip side, what are the ways in which you're frustrated that you can't get things to conform to how you wish they were? You've been trying to get this thing to happen, but it won't. I would suggest that few things will elevate your soul and consciousness faster than, than giving yourself to the details. And simply, one of the ways is just to ask, what is the ideal that I'm longing for and how can I 
concretize that in space and time right now in some small way? What could I actually do? I'm powerless over X, but could I do Y as a way of taking that ideal and bringing it into the present space, time, flesh, and blood? Maybe you got wronged, but you were wronged by somebody. And you carry around such rage against them. And it would be better to have a future without that anger and rage, carrying that wound everywhere you go, because wounds are heavy to carry around. Uh, but that might take a while. So uh, maybe you just begin each day by writing their name down. And you just say, I, I write their name down as a way of freeing myself from them, to remind myself that they're a human being, that they're loved, that I can be free of them, I, whatever it is. You start with the most basic. A ritual, you have to be able to do it, by the way. A ritual has to be something you could actually do. Um, do breakfast right. Do breakfast right, and, and your whole day will change shape. Yeah, it's interesting how many people talk about this sense of being really, really busy, of moving so fast, of a, the, the weeks just fly by, and you ask them what they have for breakfast, and they're like, I grab something on the way out the door. No wonder, no wonder. Yeah, of course, no wonder the whole thing feels chaotic. There aren't any rituals that take the ideal and put you in the midst of the ideal in flesh and blood and space and time. How do you take part in a new reordering of the world? You start by ordering the space in your life that you can control in purposeful, streamlined, focused disciplined ways. If you have closets full of stuff that you don't use, you get rid of it. Your closet's being ordered. Few things will cause your soul to soar like an eagle than the space, the physical spaces around you being aligned and organized well. And I know that sounds like an advertisement for the container store, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's the concretization of the ideal. It's the transforming power of ritual. It's the elevation of the mundane. Yeah, and, and for so many people, uh, we don't live in a very ritualized culture, so for so many people, this lesson got missed, and then no wonder life feels chaotic. Imagine, I mean, go back to the story. Go, imagine, go back to the ancient Near East to a group of former slaves wandering the wilderness and just tell them, hey, just sort of figure it out, you know, go with your guts. If it feels good, do it. <laughs> right? Think about it. Think about a, a friend of yours who's just devastated uh, by, by uh, some horrific trauma. And it's just like, it's, t it's just putting one foot in front of the other is taking all their energy. And if you were like, well, you know, just, just get back in the game, see how it goes. Um, you know, wishing you the best. Not that helpful, but tell you what, I'll meet you each morning. We'll go for a walk we'll notice the birds singing. Then we'll have a nice meal. Uh, then we'll clean up. Then we'll put on clean clothes, right? You, you start with the absolute basics. How are we gonna put our life back together? How am I gonna move on after that relationship? How am I gonna make it when the job is gone and what do I do with it? Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start and I'm gonna bring order, peace, 
calm. I'm going to think through all the places and the ways that I play, ways I want my life to go. And then I'm going to right now here today, do small little details that point me in that direction. And who knows? Yeah. So, uh, it's interesting also when you read the, the scholarly literature on, on Leviticus, once in a while you'll see a scholar who gets it and is like, wait, this is an insanely hopeful ancient text because it says in a deeply disempowered world. Because remember, in a tribal conscious culture in the ancient Near East thousands of years ago, a tribe could come over the hill any moment and just wipe you out, take, all, take you all slaves. Like this had just happened in Egypt. This could happen. You'd just come out of slavery. You could be, and, and obviously the story throughout the, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures is constantly there's a neighbor who's making their lives miserable. So it's a very tenuous life and death hang in the balance. Um, talk about fear, terror, paranoia. And yet what they're given is here, you can do this and have joy. There's literally chapter eight at the end of the ritual, then everybody. Uh, where is it? Chapter nine, somewhere in here. Wait, where? Yeah, yeah. The end of chapter nine, Leviticus, they've done the rituals for the first time. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Just the base note, just below the surface of Leviticus, it's said explicit here at the end of chapter nine, is that ordinary people can live in the midst of incredible stresses with joy and wonder and awe. That's the insistence this storyteller keeps bringing up in this very hard-to-read ancient priestly manual. Ordinary, average people who've been through horrific oppression and trauma can be in a very tenuous, life-and-death, terrifying situation in which life hangs in the balance, and they can be filled with wonder and joy and awe. And that, my friends, is good news. May grace and peace be with you.